Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on MovieHouseMemories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. to another episode of Movie House Memories, the podcast where we look back and review the films that we think are the most important films in cinema history. I'm Patrick, and with me tonight are a few good men who spend a large portion of their lives in darkened movie theaters. First, he's our resident lumberjack and the man who sees symbolism in his cornflakes. He's one of the co-hosts of the Criterion Critics and Lunchtime Movie Review podcast here on the MHN Podcast Network, Bobby Taylor. And I can't handle the truth. No. You can't. You really can't. <laughs> also with us, uh, he's one of the co-hosts of Male Bonding, the James Bond retrospective podcast here on the MHN Podcast Network. You can follow him on Twitter at Haybucker, Matt Palmer. You know, I tried telling people I was uh, commanded to give those swirlies in junior high, and it didn't work for me either. No. What, it was more of a code brown? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And finally, the man who's always willing to get up early in the morning. Actually, it's only lunchtime today or at this point for you, right? That's it. It's uh, just gone 2 p.m. in the afternoon. Oh, I'll never get used to that difference in time. Uh, he's uh, he's always willing to join his American brothers and sisters tonight, just as American brothers. He appears regularly regularly on Movie House Concessions, occasionally on the Number 2 Review, Criterion Critics, and Lunchtime Movie Review podcast here on the MHN Podcast Network. You can follow him on Twitter at movie underscore analyst, Shane Adam Bassett. So, this is what an inside of the courtroom looks like. Hmm. I don't think our other two guests would know what that means. <laughs> I've, never, I've never been inside one, not even a movie set one. Uh, yeah, keep it that way as long as you can. Yeah. <laughs> most, Thanks, most, yeah, most of them don't look that elaborate. They really, really don't. All right. Welcome, everyone. And before we get started, we'd like to thank all the returning listeners to the show and welcome all new listeners to Movie House Memories. Thanks for downloading us and giving us a try. We appreciate your time and attention and hope you keep on listening and following us on Pinterest or Twitter at MH Memories. On either one of those social media outlets, you can keep yourself informed about our occasional written film reviews and film summaries, news on upcoming theatrical releases and trailers, and information on many upcoming podcasts on the MHN Podcast Network. Additionally, you can also subscribe to our account on YouTube, where we are releasing our podcasts exclusively. If you subscribe to our account and set the notifications bell, uh, you can get updates of when we post new material on YouTube. You can also give us a like or dislike if you so choose and leave a comment either about the films we're reviewing, our opinions about those films, or even a suggestion as a for a film that you believe should be reviewed as one of the top 100 films of all time. Of course, we always like the, the reviews are positive, but we appreciate any feedback that we can get from any listeners of the show. Now, with the horrible business out of the way, let's get on to Bobby's next pick for one of the greatest films of all time, 1992's A Few Good Men. And Bobby, do you have a summary for us? I do. Right, that's great, because I have absolutely no responsibility here whatsoever. So. Can you tell me a story? A Few Good Men is the film based on the hit Broadway play by the same name. In the opening, we see a U.S. Marine named Willie Santiago asleep in his bunk when he is rushed by two other Marines, Lance Corporal Dawson and PFC Downey, who bind his hands and wrap a rag, a rag around Santiago's mouth. The next day, highly skilled but lazy JAG attorney for the Navy, Lieutenant J.G. Caffey, is assigned to the case where it is discovered that Santiago died from the attack. Caffey, who has never been inside a courtroom because he pleads all of his cases before trial, immediately tries to plea bargain the case before he even takes a look at the case. Navy Commander Galloway requires Caffey to read the file, and when Caffey blows off the meeting, Galloway gets Downey's aunt to allow her to become Downey's attorney, requiring a full inquiry and a trial. 
When Caffey and Galloway meet with Downey and Dawson, Caffey tries to get them to plead guilty to a lesser charge, but the Marines refuse since they state they were following orders to give Santiago a code red, which is military speak for hazing a weakling into stepping up their efforts. In pretrial, Caffey, Galloway, and Caffey's friend and colleague Navy Lieutenant Greenberg visit Guantanamo Bay, Cuba to the Marine barracks run by powerful Colonel Jessup. The Navy attorneys make a quick rundown of Santiago's barracks and speak to his unit commanders up to and including combative Marine Lieutenant Kendrick and Jessup's second-in-command, Lieutenant Colonel Markinson. At lunch with the attorneys and the Marines, Caffey shows a lack of decorum in the presence of the ultra-disciplined Marines. When Caffey asks about the Code Red, all the Marines state they don't do that in their unit. So when Caffey asks for basic paperwork on Santiago's request to transfer off the base from Jessup, the egomaniacal colonel demands Caffey show respect to Jessup by asking in a military manner, thus exposing the attorneys to the formidable character witnesses that will be called later in the trial. As the trial heats up and Caffey, Galloway, and Weinberg realize all their preparation is being sabotaged by both the accused Marines and the superior officers in the Marines, the Navy attorneys have to learn how to circumvent the highly militarized and deeply held belief that Marines put the Corps above even God in their system of justice. So as the trial continues and Caffey gets closer and closer to crossing legal and military boundaries to uncover uncover the truth, as star witnesses disappear and others lie to cover up for their fellow Marines all in the name of honor, when Caffey calls Jessup for the final courtroom showdown, will we discover the truth behind the death of Private Santiago, or will we find out the Corps takes care of its own and we can't handle the truth? Watch A Few Good Men to find out. All right. Films are influenced by the times they're made in, and we look back at some of the big news events in Lori Flores' Headlines of the Time, once again brought this month by me. A Few Good Men was released in December of 1992, so I focused on some of the news events in December. On December 9th, the Prince and Princess of Wales publicly announced their separation. On December 12th, a 7.8 earthquake affected the Lesser Sunda Islands in Indonesia, uh, leaving at least 2,500 people dead. A destructive tsunami with wave heights of 25 meters uh, high followed shortly thereafter. On December 22nd, the archives of terror are discovered by Dr. Martin Alamada, detailing the fates of thousands of Latin Americans who had been secretly kidnapped, tortured, and killed by the security services of Argentina, Bolivia, Brazil, Chile, Paraguay, and Uruguay in what also became known as Operation Condor. And on December 24th, President George H.W. Bush pardoned six national security officials implicated in the Iran-Contra affair, including Casper Weinberger. Uh, In the section I like to refer to is Doesn't This Make You Feel Old? People born in the later half of 1992 included on September 30th, uh, American actor Ezra Miller, best known for playing The Flash and also being part of Fantastic Beasts. Uh, On November 23rd, American singer-songwriter and actress Miley Cyrus was born. And on December 14th, American singer and songwriter Tori Kelly was born. Deaths in the latter half of 1992 included on October 21st, Jim Garrison, uh, the American attorney best known for his involvement in the only criminal case brought uh, concerning the JFK assassination uh, and detailed in the film JFK, uh, died of cancer. On October 22nd, American actor Cleveland Little, best known for um, Blazing Saddles, died of colon cancer. On November 10th, uh, American actor Chuck Connors, known as the Rifleman in the television series, died of lung cancer. And then on December 9th, Vincent Gardenia, an Italian-American actor, died of a heart attack. Movies released in 1992 included Aladdin, Basic Instinct, Wayne's World, Sister Act, The Bodyguard, Batman Returns, Lethal Weapon 3, and Bobby's next pick for one of the greatest films of all time, A Few Good Men. And that was 1992. All right. uh, We start usually by talking about the casting of the film. Undoubtedly, the lead playing Lieutenant Daniel Caffey is Tom Cruise. 
Uh, Bobby, uh, your pick. So we'll start with you. What did you think of Tom Cruise's performance in this film? I thought he did a good job. I don't think he's normally this kind of a a character actor rather than he's more action oriented rather than courtroom drama. But I thought he brought his his best suit to the to the uh, to the production. And I thought he did a pretty good job. I I can see a whole bunch of other actors that could have done just as good. His energy is excellent, and I did like that. But to be honest, there were some of the other actors in this cast could have been could have done the job just as well. I thought he was really good. I thought he was, had a little too much energy at times. It was a little, um, you know, a little, a little over the top. But overall, really, really well done. I think it was a great performance from him. I, I liked it. Yeah, same. Um, a little bit over the top, and I didn't like him much to begin with. I guess you weren't really supposed to. But uh, the further the movie went, the better he got, if that makes sense. I really liked him a lot in the end, especially with some of those monologues. Uh, so you didn't like the character or his performance? His character. Okay. Yeah, sorry. His char- he was acting that well, I guess. He, it's that, he annoyed me a lot. Um, uh, in, in a way, it would have been good to see Demi Moore's character take over a little bit more, but that didn't happen. You know, uh, you know, I'm a fan of Tom Cruise. I've liked him in a lot of performances. This is one of my favorite roles. Uh, I like him in this film, and uh, obviously, you know, Bobby's already hinted at that Matt and I are actually lawyers in real life. So uh, we, you know, we work in the the legal profession, and you know, his his type of attorney very much exists in this world, and I would argue sometimes is the more effective attorney because everyone tends to think in, in grand visions of, oh, attorneys take stuff to trial. Those are the truly gifted attorneys. No, I'll disagree with that. Attorneys recognize strengths and weaknesses of cases and take what they think they can win when they go to trial. And that's what he keeps advocating throughout the entirety of the film is it's what he can prove, what can, he can win, and he can't overcome bad facts, which he has a lot of them in this film. <laughs> Uh, what about Demi Moore playing Lieutenant Commander Joanne Galloway? She she's okay. She's a little too intense for me too. In a different way than Tom Cruise, she doesn't do as much shouting and you know the the, the theatrics. I guess uh, if you'll forgive the the pun, but um, she she just had something about her character. I think she played it just a little too overconfident for someone in her position in that field at that time. And I don't know if it was the way they directed her or if that's just what she brought to it, but I, I didn't find her to be completely believable. I liked her a lot. Um, a, a real lot. Actually, she, she was in this moment in her career where I guess she was having a lot of ups and downs. Um, but this was a solid piece of work from her and they could have easily cast other people in front of her at the time bigger names but uh, i think she was a good choice really good choice great chemistry in my eyes with tom cruise i i liked her i i don't i don't think that she was perfectly cast but i think she did a really good job with what she had and i think her character was a little bit shortchanged in some of the dialogue i think it ended up in tom cruise's uh, mouth rather than some of it could have been Demi Moore's um, opportunity to speak more and give her a little more power. But uh, as overall, I think she was she did a really good job. I, and and I have to say it was kind of a thankless job because she obviously was the sex appeal for uh, for female or you know of, of the female persuasion in the film. She's the only one in in the whole film. And uh, they and I understand that she also was trying not to be sexualized, which I think was an excellent idea. I think she was just an attorney, and I like how she played that as as well. She should play it that way. So I, I really liked it. She was an officer, and she needed to be treated as such. You know, I think Demi Moore plays intelligent very well. She's an actress that I really like when she plays smart, and she plays extremely smart in this particular film. She has great chemistry with Kevin Pollock and Tom Cruise, uh, and even with, uh, you know, uh, uh, Dawson and Downey, I think she plays very well with those actors as well. 
Um, I will agree with you the fact that her character wasn't overly sexualized and just was there to be a smart woman in a, a capacity, you know, in a kind of a, a control capacity, as I thought was really even unique in the early 90s, uh, because as we're going to get into the discussion in a few moments about how uh, what the studio wanted to do with that character and that role, um, I really appreciated the fact that they didn't. Uh, make it a romance or even hint at any kind of uh, sexual relationship between Tom Cruise and her character, uh, because it would have been a complete distraction from what was the purpose of the film. But there is a, uh, a, a moving force in this particular film. Shane, what did you think about Jack Nicholson playing Colonel Nathan R. Jessup? Uh, flawless. Nothing else to say other than awesome, flawless and, it's part of the lexicon, some of that speech that he says, uh, but every every moment, not just the end, I, I really love how they introduce him and, and the music that changes when he's on screen. Jack is brilliant. I will agree 100%. What, he was paid a lot of money for the role, and I think we're going to probably talk about that later, but for only – 10 days worth of work, but he was worth every penny of what they put into it. He brought uh, a, a huge presence to that film and gave it all kinds of credibility with the way he delivered his lines. And I, I actually really liked how they had him written into the story because he starts out as this, you know, gentle kind of nice, nice guy commanding officer that everybody kind of, you know, respects. And the next thing you know, he just on a dime, he turns into this monster right in front of your eyes and it just, you will do his will or else. And, and I, I really, really liked that about him. And yeah, I don't, there's only a, I don't, I don't even know if it's a handful, maybe two or three actors that could play the role the way he did. One of them was Gene Hackman who got an Oscar in another film <laughs> at the same time. So uh, he was, he was perfect, just perfect. Matt? Yeah, just one of the more memorable performances coming from anywhere. He, he certainly made his money, and um, he made the movie, really. It was, it was just that good. You know, Jack has a long history of doing a stellar performance, even in mediocre films. And this is not a mediocre film by any stretch of the imagination. A, a very memorable performance in a short amount of time. You know, Bobby's kind of reference that he got paid five million dollars for 10 days worth of work. It was actually 11 days worth, 10 and a half days worth of work. He had a hard out after 10 days and they were missing some, a scene. And Carl or not Carl Reiner, Rob Reiner asked him to uh, if he'd be willing to come back the next day. And he's like, sure. And came back because he just enjoyed working on the film set. And even though he was only contracted for doing 10 days, it goes to his professionalism. And uh, I've, I've, I've listened to Kevin Pollack's uh, uh, podcast for many, many years. And he talks about how this was his best experience uh, working on this, the, the, any film set. And he talks about, you know, Jack Nicholson uh, specifically of kind of being kind of a, a symbol of professionalism because, you know, he d definitively could have been had that kind of fuck you attitude. I, I'm Jack Nicholson. I can do whatever I want. I can show up whenever I want it. But he he was always present. He was always there. Uh, they described how when they were doing coverage of the other actors reactions to his big scene while he's testifying on, on the stand, he didn't deliver the lines half-assed he gave a performance even though he wasn't being on camera at that point in time to the point where he was just exhausted by the end of the day uh, and I, I think that really says something about his acting ability and professionalism and it is such a memorable performance not just the one line but the entirety of the performance all right well i i mentioned this uh a little while ago or a few minutes ago about talking about demi moore and something that i always i really admired about this and i'm always still surprised uh that there was no romance thrown in there between tom cruise and demi moore even though i don't feel it was necessary but doing the research for this film how much tristar pictures which who had the rights to the film initially really wanted uh, aaron sorkin to write a uh, sexual relationship not even a romantic relation just uh, just the two of them to have sex in the film because Hey, we have Demi Moore and she's an extremely attractive woman. And the, one of the quotes that I read was, why would we cast Demi Moore 
uh, if there's not going to be any kind of sexualization of her character, why wouldn't we just cast a male actor to play the same part? What did you guys think of both that drive to do that and the fact that there was no relationship between uh, the two of them other than a professional relationships? Well, it looked like they started to try to, to, to do that in one of the scenes where Demi asks Cruz for a drink or a or dinner or something. It was one of the two. But it, I think that was what TriStar initially wanted that was shot that never happened. And that was the only reference. And I, I'm angry at TriStar for even thinking that that's even a possibility because this was a very – uh, emotional movie about life and death uh, about somebody that and and these people's lives were in their hands and for that to turn sexual just because they were working on stuff was exactly the the problem that we have in Hollywood right now is it just became a thing to do is you got a, a beautiful woman and you've got Tom Cruise superstar so let's put them in bed together with zero zero romanticism let's just have them hop in bed show to me uh, for gratification and we get our money's worth and that is wrong in this film in this film is so much better I'm so thankful Rob Reiner won that won that war it was it was wrong yeah it wouldn't have added anything to the story it, it would have been completely unnecessary and if anything, just more more distracting from, from the drama that occurs in the courtroom towards the end of the movie, right? You've got to resolve that tension or, or something. So it, it's a worse movie with it, without a doubt. The fact that they wanted to cram it in there isn't surprising at all, but they they were right not to. It just, it just wouldn't have worked. Can I also throw in that it would have made Demi's co- uh, character less respectful by the end of the film? She would have just been the, the, the sex pot and not the capable commander attorney. Yeah, po- you know, possibly. But I think that's I, I, I think that's almost a stereotype that even if she was a highly sexualized character, a la like, you know, Sharon Stone and Basic Instinct doesn't take away from her potential ability as an attorney other than that's how a lot of the audience will see it as. And I think that's the. The nature of sometimes of, uh, you know, especially in the 80s and 90s and potentially before that is we're going to cast an attractive woman because she's attractive, not because she can play intelligent. And Demi Moore can play intelligent really, really well. And and she and I think she did a great job in that role. And I'm glad, as you said, Rob Reiner didn't go there in that regard. But. I didn't mean to skip over you, Shane. What, what, Shane, what are your thoughts? Maybe Shane feels differently. Maybe Shane said, hey, I needed a sex scene. I really wanted that. <laughs> nah, oh, I'm so glad it wasn't here. This is 1992. Like Hollywood corrupt was happening all behind the scenes. And, uh, you know, the same year as uh, Basic Instinct, as you said, and which had what it had, as we all know, Sharon Stone's famous scene and, and sex scenes in that film, even Under Siege had to have Erica Elenik that same year jump out of a birthday cake naked or half naked just to have her there as as a scene. So honestly, I'm stoked that they did not go that way. Demi Moore needed more dialogue anyway, and it would have made it even, like, like uh, Bobby just said, a little bit disrespectful. But it is a shock. It must have been really hard for the producers or whoever made that final decision not to have uh, Tom and Demi end up in some kind of romantic saxophone-filled scene because <laughs> it just would have ruined it. And it didn't – it would have had no – I mean, it was great that they went out to dinner. They had that dinner date. And, yeah, if it was going to happen, it would have happened then. And if I don't even know if they filmed it and it was cut. I'm not sure. But that's obviously when it would have happened after their seafood dinner. Glad well, and Shane makes a great point. The, the, the saxophone would have been unbearable. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the score was already pretty average. Yeah, but, but I'm going to disagree with Shane in one capacity. Erica Leniak is the highlight of Under Siege by a long stretch <laughs> of imagination. And the only reason that, that movie sits on my shelf, because that's the only Steven Seagal <laughs> film that I own, and it's because Erica Leniak is in that film. I'm... My hands up too. <laughs> well, I'm glad at least that's what's up. But all right, <laughs> Bobby, how about symbolism and hidden meanings? 
I have Colonel Jessup symbolized a god complex in his role as superior ranking officer at the Marine base in Guantanamo Bay. Guantanamo Bay. He may speak kindly to his inferiors, but when he wants something his way, there's no other path but to obey. And if you disobey, he has harsh ways to make sure it never happens again. The code red symbolizes how hazing's not just military justice outside a courtroom, but can act as a means of humiliating and potentially causing irreparable harm to those who participate. The white uniforms worn by the Navy attorneys amongst the khaki-uniformed Marines in Cuba not only symbolized an easy target for Cuban snipers only a few hundred yards away, but white symbolized an elitist mentality to the Marines as though the Navy can't expose themselves to get dirty in a war zone when Marines wear earth tones and are willing to sacrifice themselves in the dirt in a moment's notice for one's country. And lastly, Lieutenant Caffey symbolizes all that's wrong with our justice system. By knowing the law and all the sentencing guidelines, he lazily chooses to plea everything instead of actually digging into the cold hard facts to determine right from wrong. Yeah, I, I think the movie was, was setting it up that way, at least, that he was he was kind of lazy and, and heartless. And, and I, I think contained within the movie, that's that's a fair statement. I don't I, you know, I think Patrick made a good point earlier about that. But I think a lot of those other symbols, the white, the whites, and um, things like that, I think that was very, very observant. Yeah, it was the only one that I would have mentioned as well was the uniform, the colors. Uh, some of the camera shots too were done from below when you saw Jack Nicholson, and I don't know if that was like a stature kind of thing, but that happened too a couple of times. Yeah, I, I like the the God complex aspect of it. Is Jessup very much uh, f- fulfills that role? Although I do, to a certain extent, respect his his command presence, especially with you know his friend when he's you know he gives him that speech of like you know if this is a a matter of uh, that uh, uh, makes you uncomfortable or something like that that I got promoted uh, with more efficiency or uh, faster than you have. I don't give a shit. (laughs) I I really like that dialogue. I really like that line because in reality, yeah, that's true. You have to, you know, you respect the chain of command and just because we're friends doesn't mean you can question my authority in front of, uh, you know, uh, other officers. So don't do it. And I I think that was one of the best scenes in the film. And that led to obviously the JT Walsh characters, self-inflicted demise. Yeah. that, That moment. I really liked that character, or J.T. Walsh, I'm not sure, but I really liked how that was portrayed. Almost everybody in this film was just perfect. We kind of got away from this, from the acting, but there are so many great actors playing small roles. You know, Christopher Guest is in this, Noah Wiley's in this, Cuba Gooding Jr., all in much smaller roles. Now, Cuba Gooding Jr. and Noah Wiley were up-and-comers at that time. Cuba had already done Boys in the Hood, but he was probably making this film when that film came out. So he wasn't quite that the actor who is known, but you had, you know, just, a, you know, even a, a, um, Xander Berkeley playing Tom Cruise's boss. I mean, there's a, a whole litany of people that are just really, really good playing small, small parts in this film that really bring a presence uh, to, to each and every one of their scenes. Uh, Matt. And don't forget Aunt Ginny. She had one great line to Tom. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Matt, what about the moral universe? It, it, the way this movie wraps up, I think it, it really just embraces a fully kind of patriotic, conservative view of, of the, the military in the end. You know, as much as there's scandal here, that epiphany that uh, that they have at the end with what we're supposed to do, we're supposed to protect the weak and all these other things. You know, it's a movie that ultimately is really not critical of military culture or military involvement. So despite the fact that you you have this Jessup character who maybe was viewed as as stepping over a line, I think it's not it's not really a movie that wants to challenge the way the military thinks of itself or or military minded people think of themselves. That's that's one part. The other part, and, and this is the thing that maybe bothers me more about this movie than anything else. Is that Tom Cruise's character has no real experience as as a trial attorney? That's kind of the joke throughout. But for some reason, he he like turns into like the most practiced 
you know, knowledgeable, well-rounded guy simply by caring at some point. And this idea that something is complex and is as difficult and, and as touchy as that is really just a matter of, you know, instincts and heart is um, just kind of annoying, you know? <laughs> it's like It's like, you know, he couldn't – his old man was a great baseball player. So he, you know, he picks up a bat when it matters and all of a sudden he's, he's Babe Ruth. That's just silly. And, and I don't think it, it, it played well in this movie. Well, I, I will you, comment no. that the, his one skill that he was good at was softball. So picking up a bat may be his skill set. I will give him that. <laughs> Sorry, Shane. That's all right. No, that's all right. Uh, would you say Matt that, um, I agree what you said because it all came fairly quick to him. But would would um, Demi Moore's character, Joanne Galloway, would she be the secret to his success? I don't know how she could. <laughs> you know, I, I think she was she, doing a bit of work for him for a while there, and then doing his work, you know, ahead of time, and then he sort of clicked into gear. Yeah, I mean, the, you have like the cross examination scene with with Colonel Jessup in the, in the movie, which is which is like some pretty good textbook stuff. And, you know, I, I've, I've seen a lot of attorneys do their first trial and I haven't seen any of them do that. So (laughs) I can't argue with that. Yeah. I don't know. Well, um, you know, going back to kind of what I said before about, you know, uh, about Kathy, you know, being able to plead out the the case. I, I agree with you. The way they characterize him in this film is they try to at least give him this, a lack of effort, laugh, lack of caring that his primary goal is to just to resolve the case as quickly as possible with as minimal work as possible and doesn't really care how it impacts his clients. Now, the other side of it, because Shane just asked about what about Demi Moore, you know, and Matt, you can follow up with this is that Demi Moore kind of plays this other kind of stereotypical attorney that I've seen throughout is that very much true believer, very much caring and not focusing on how the evidence is going to play out and just saying, well, we have to take it to trial because we have no other choice. And that that's a, a lack of experience. And you see that played out in the film when she starts objecting uh, and then strenuously objects, um, which is a joke that most attorneys understand uh, that I work with uh, is that, no, you only do it once. And, you know, and the, the, this idea that she's inexperienced in a different way is that, you know, she, she, she can't, she's too invested in her case and she's not clinical enough to the case where Tom Cruise is too clinical and not emotionally invested in the case and which way is right or wrong. You know, from my perspective as an attorney is it's really close. You know, you have to be invested in your case, but you can't lose sight of it and just go and act completely off emotion. Like, like Galloway does Mm -hmm. Matt, what Matt? Yeah. Matt, what, I mean, what is your perspective on that? Oh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, she's basically, Encouraging these guys to play Russian roulette with three loaded rounds, right? I mean, they, there's this point of of you know risk tolerance that is the conversation you have to have. Of yeah, look, man, if you if you like to gamble, whatever, I'll give you the best shot I can. But her her character very much is so caught up in the righteousness of her case that she she's encouraging these guys to take this colossal risk and it turned out well in the end but at the same time their their entire life was was at issue in the court that day and she didn't ever seem to grasp that well i think that's part of the the beauty of this film though is that i think you do have three rookie attorneys that are good at what they are at they're good at their individual uh skill set outside of a courtroom but once they're thrown into the courtroom it was watch the three minnows swimming up against a very capable oh shoot kevin bacon playing captain ross because he he knew exactly what he was trying to do and had to and also was keeping in military that regimented style saying, you know, they, they have to go by rules. I mean, Patrick, you're the judge. You, you run your courtroom the same way. I'm sure you've got, everybody has their time to speak and everybody shuts up until they're allowed to speak and so on, which is very military. 
which I think was really good here. I, I think that Demi's character, I think she got the emotional character or the emotional role, which is more familial than it is to for or, or feminine than it is for uh, a masculine, but that's just shortchanging her character. I think she her character was important to play that. She dug deep, got all all of his his ducks in a row, and then watch Kathy speak uh, or or go off in the in his perfect Tom Cruise craziness. Except um, when, sorry to cut in, Bobby, but what about that no, you're first good. that first part with Jack Nicholson and and the Jessup character? She started talking before Tom, and he kept saying, "Well, no, we've got to go. We're about to leave." But that's what I think – this is why I think this film is so good is that the writing of this allowed characters to stay in their their natural lane for rank in military. And whenever, and whenever Caffey came out and started acting like a spoiled brat that he was – he was the the junior of everybody, and yeah. he's treating and he's treating everybody like they're just his buddies, or they're you know they're out drinking together or playing softball together. And Nicholson's character just called him on it instantly and said, "Hey, she's your superior, you yeah. know." And by the way, so am I, and I want some goddamn respect from you, you know. And it was like that's that's the kind of thing that I love about this film is that they speak. So well, um, each character is given true – I don't know if it's authenticity, but they are giving them the ability to actually speak their character. They're not just, hey, you know, throw something up on the wall and watch you know, Tom Cruise shoot it out of the, out of the sky because he's, a, uh, he's the master. He was, he was not as good, and there were others that were better. And that's what makes this film good. But as far as Matt's moral universe, I think everybody here in this film was they they had their their agenda, but they were military, and they I, I think this was really well done uh, from that perspective. And I think they were they're pretty moral about their role in the military. Not necessarily, I think. I mean, obviously, they murdered some, or you know, accidentally murdered somebody. Doing the code red, and that's abominable. But at the same time, it's that happens. But the rest of it, this is very. I, I really liked it. Well, there, there's two other attorneys. There's Jack Ross, and then there's Weinberg, played by uh, Kevin Pollock. And you know, it's it's interesting as I keep talking about the stereotypical attorneys that I encounter or I've encountered in my career. Is they're the uh, there's they're pretty much the other two kinds. There's, you know, the, you know, Jack Ross, who's, he's the prosecutor in this case. I mean, he's very, he's very clinical when he's, these are the facts and they are not in dispute. Um, and, you know, and he gets up there and, and he doesn't argue emotion. He argue he sits there and argues the facts and, you know, yep. and, and, you know, Matt and I have both been prosecutors at some, one point in our careers. And, you know, that's kind of how we're trained, but Weinberg is that kind of the most interesting attorney because he doesn't like them. He does not like his clients. You know, he sits there and says, I don't like them because they picked on a weaker kid. And in he, you know, he gets confrontational, you know, with Galloway with why do you like him? And she says, cause they stand on the wall and say, you're going to be safe. You know, you have nothing to worry about. And that's the emotion aspect that has nothing to do with the case. And, you know, and I thought it was a, an interesting playoff that he said he stays on the case, even though he doesn't be necessarily believe in the case. He might've been referring back to his own history though. I, I felt in that scene, he might've been picked on as a kid. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. Oh, no. I mean, there's a backstory to that character that, you know, you, you can see that, that there's he's emotionally raw. So they picked on a yeah. weaker kid. That's all they did. All right, Shane, what about the music uh, film composed by Mark Shaman? Shaman? Uh, Shaman. And it's very ordinary. I mean, it made <laughs> no difference to the movie. Uh, it was very military themed, generic a lot of percussion, basically, and the only time it really changed was uh, twice when you saw Jack Nicholson. Uh, the, the tone and the music changed and it went up a little bit of a level, but it was still insignificant to notice unless you were listening. Uh, and then at the end credits was a whole marching band thing happening, military marching band. So the music, I was very disappointed, actually, because I had not seen this for a long time. I was expecting a great score, you know, really pumping up the drama. 
it did not. And he, uh, as a composer, Mark Shaman, has done a lot of good good music in a lot of movies. So, yeah, the music didn't enhance any of the scenes at all, in my opinion. When I watch, when I watch any military film, very rarely do I care about the music other than a marching band that would be playing on parade grounds. So as far as I'm concerned, this was exactly what I was expecting for a military film. Yeah. It wasn't – it didn't set anybody's world on fire and the end – credits of the military band was exactly what i was expecting so, so I, i'd give it yeah i'd give it an average and nothing more uh it didn't bother me and it definitely didn't set the world on fire well i could have hated it more and i could have hated it less which is you know most movies okay i for a film that i think is a stellar film uh the uh, i i'll go even further than shane it's not just average it is bad i mean there are yep. portions where it's just it's like who who composed this on their casio and or it, their keyboard and it just i i expected a much i don't want to say bombastic but a much more richer score uh with an orchestra uh yeah you have the parade music at the beginning and the end uh, but it's the same parade music and it, you know it it fits those particular scenes, but I, I am almost taken back out of it at certain points of like, is this a TV movie of the week type of thing? That I mean, it was very yeah. television like, yeah. And, and when I'm not talking television like now, or even some of the movies, the shows in the '80s had better music than this. It just was really unacceptable for this type of quality film. Yeah, I was really disappointed in the score. I was really paying attention to it in this time. And it's weird because I can hear pieces of the score and because I've seen this movie so many times, but like really paying attention. Like, God, the score is really bad. It just did, did not did not play very well. All right. Ending of the film. Uh, ultimately, uh, Jessup finally admits the code red. Um, the Dawson and Downey are found not guilty of the murders and conspiracy to commit murder, but found uh, guilty of uh, conduct unbecoming of uh, a, a Marine. And then Dawson has this immediate epiphany when Downey's asking, what did we do wrong? What did we do wrong? And states, what we were, we should have protected Santiago. We we're supposed to keep protect those who couldn't protect themselves. Interesting. Uh, in this is the comparison to the play in the play. Dawson's asking, what did we do wrong? And it's Weinberg who tells him this is what you did wrong and gives that line as far yeah. as, and, and I thought it was a really in, interesting transition uh, to change it from Weinberg. Cause obviously Weinberg knows what they did wrong and understands it and explains it to him. And I, I I'm curious what you guys think of tr changing that dialogue, that scene, uh, uh, you know, that epiphany for Dawson from uh, t taking it from Weinberg to and placing it onto Dawson. I, I would have liked that line better from Weinberg. I think it it dampens that military enthusiasm I, I mentioned earlier. I think it's a I think it's a better line. I think it's a better movie. I think it's more reflective than him having his own epiphany. So you know, as for the ending of the movie, uh, you you could have had the the same movie up to the first ninety five percent and dramatically changed it in the last few minutes. So. You know, what do you want to say? And and you can tailor the ending to that. So I won't second guess it because it's such a good movie. But I think that that one tweak is a still substantially the same movie, but a little better version of it. You know, ultimately, kind of justice was done across the board in this in this movie. So, you know, that's the kind of movie it is, and I I won't fault it. Yeah, happy to agree with everything Matt just said. It would have been a critical. Uh, change in a, in a sense it would have changed a little bit but just critical in the way you perceived it rather than the way you felt if that makes sense i think it was a pretty flawless film when it comes to how the logistics of the screenplay were all set up so i'm actually happy with how it was originally filmed I will agree with what both Matt and Shane are saying. I believe it would have been better to have been delivered by Weinberg. He does say, state something very similar to that earlier in the film. Yeah. And so for him to say it a second time would be just exactly what you would expect. 
Dawson was obviously an intelligent uh, Marine, and he was – that's why he was a Lance Corporal for his platoon rather than just a PFC. He was one of their leaders. So obviously he was a, a thoughtful kid to begin with, but to have – when when you have been represented for your basically to to uh, to save your life out of prison and one of your and, and then basically be ignored by your three attorneys while you figure it out oh that's what I was supposed to be doing that kind of cheapens the 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 ending to me I think it would have been better to come from one of the attorneys that saved his life to go oh I get it now okay that that makes much more sense um, so I think that would have been a better ending but I also uh, to go back to Matt's perspective on the moral universe I still think Sam Weinberg is almost like a little bit of a moral universe for the three attorneys or for that that side on in the in the fight so he just kind of always had that wise owl thought process he was the even keel to to Cruz's craziness and to Demi's kind of in it in inexperience, uh, so I, I really liked his character. I wish he would have been used more. You know, but I'm, the ending. Sorry to, to get back to your ending. I really like how the ending happened, where they. But I. But they also. Uh, my understanding is uh, from military law is they shouldn't have been found guilty of uh, conduct unbecoming because it's conduct unbecoming an officer, and these guys were enlisted, so that should have had some other reason. Well, Dawson was uh, he was a corporal, so I mean Lance Corporal, Lance yeah. Corporal. Yeah, I mean I don't know if that falls into officer category, but he has a rank, um, if, and that may be the highest level he could achieve as someone who just enters the Marine without any kind of officer training. But uh, oh he, no, Lance, Lance Corporal is below sergeant. Okay, well, that's true. You know, you know, I'm actually kind of taken back. I was thinking. I really like the idea of Weinberg giving that line. I think I prefer the play version over the film. And I really like the, the film version as well, but I think it would have been a little bit better that I, it always rang untrue to me for Dawson to suddenly just after being so resistant, the entire film suddenly to say, yeah, we did wrong. And this is how we did it and explain it to Downey, uh, it, especially in light of the fact that, you know, throughout the entirety of the film that you, uh, you know, Dawson is almost, almost a villainous in the aspect of like Downey wasn't in the room when Kendrick came in and told him to give the, the code red and allowed everyone to think that until it blew up in their faces in the middle of the trial, mm -hmm. you know, that, 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 uh, that is, you know, he, you know, this idea that he's supposed to be somewhat honorable. I never, he, he, he followed his code and he followed the military, you know, the Marines code, but I didn't necessarily find him as honorable. <laughs> And, you know, and, that, and I think that was supposed to be his redemptive act is uh, this is where, you know, explaining it to Downey. And I and I, that just didn't ring true to me. I liked it. I liked the idea of it. Weinberg explaining to him, this is where you did wrong. And this is and this is the, the punishment you're going to get for it is you can't be part of that world any longer. Just a, a quick side note on the actor who played um, Dawson. Have any of you seen him before? I've not seen him in anything, and I forgot how good he was in this, but I don't recall him in any other films. I, I've seen him, God, trying to remember what I've seen him in, but I've He's seen quite him. good. It's a, it's a wonder he didn't go on to more higher-profile roles. Do you know? Do you know where he came from? No. He, he was he was working as a as a uh, uh, location scout for okay. Rob Reiner's. For, and that's that, and they just went, "Hey, you would make a really good Dawson." He yeah. wasn't an actor. Oh, that's why I don't know him. Yeah. Okay, and, and then he's become an actor since then because I know I looked him up on IMDb and he has like seventy credits. You know, so he's okay. He's been involved in quite a few films, most of it small television stuff or small TV, movies. Yeah. But yeah, he, I mean, okay. he's he's never been the predominant lead, but he's been in a lot of things. All right. Mm. Film's legacy, uh, nominated for four Academy Awards, winning none. Lost Best Picture to Unforgiven. Lost Best Supporting Actor, uh, Jack Nicholson, lost to Gene Hackman for Unforgiven. Uh, lost Best Sound to the film The Last of the Mohicans. And Lost Best Film Edi Editing, also lost to Unforgiven. So films that we've reviewed and talked about before, this, is, this film lost out to. AFI in 2003, uh, Colonel Nathan R. Jessup was nominated for a villain for the 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains list, ultimately did not make the top 100. In 2005, uh, it was number 29 on the 100 Years, 100 Movie Quotes list, obviously for You Can't Handle the Truth uh, movie quote. 
Uh, in 2008, uh, it was number five on AFI's 10 top 10 list for courtroom dramas. Made on a budget of $40 million, grossed over $243 million worldwide, was in the top 10 films of that year in the United States. Rotten Tomatoes has it at 83% critics and 89% audience. And that is the limited statistics on A Few Good Men. So uh, what do you guys think of the legacy of the film and would you put it in your top 100? Matt? Well, I, for the Academy Awards, um, I would have given Unforgiven Best Picture. So I think that's appropriate. And, and that's the movie we reviewed and, and is just a great movie. So I, I think the legacy is appropriate. I'm glad people went out to the box office and watched it. I like it to see commercial success for, for good, low-budget drama. It always kind of makes me happy. So this is a really good movie. It's well-acted. It's well-written. It's not perfect. I think, it, I think you could tweak it here or there, and maybe it could be better in hindsight. But it's really well done. And, um, yeah, this one this one's in my top 100. It's not maybe terribly high, but it's in there. Shane? A lot of um, films that have been made from a play often are either boring or boxy. This is neither. Uh, $40 million seems a bit much, though. I'm guessing a lot of that money went to Nicholson and Cruz and a few other actors. Um, but that said, I, I, like Matt said, there's a few little tweaks. It's not completely perfect, but uh, it is a great film and totally deserves its legacy. I, I'm not surprised. I mean, it would have been what? Imagine that Nicholson and um, Hackman up against each other. Like you, you could be a hard one to guess. But yeah, I think Hackman in Unforgiven was the right choice. But yeah, terrific movie deserves the nominations. But yeah, um, winning not so much. Would you put it in your top one hundred? Uh, close, but no, I would not. Okay. All right. Well, as far as the legacy, uh, I will agree with Matt that it it just ran into a buzzsaw of much better films that year. Unforgiven obviously was my, one of my picks from one of the greatest films of all time in my top 10 films of all time. I love that film. I think Unforgiven was very deserving of it. This just came at a bad year because this is a great film. And I think almost any other year, potentially it could win best picture. It just unfortunately came up against uh, a, a film with, I think a, a better pedigree as far as the legacy. I'm actually kind of surprised that I tried to do a lot of research. I mean, there was, it was nominated for a lot of awards at the time, but this doesn't seem to have had a lot of legs other than it shows up on AMC all the time or TBS all the time and reruns just like Shawshank Redemption. It, you know, it's the, the 83% critics that's really low for me and it's still good, but I would have expected this in the nineties, uh, 89% audience once again, would have expected in the nineties. This is a really, really good movie. And the fact that there doesn't seem to be a lot of, you know, recognition of that fact backward looking, you know, as in top, you know, top 20 lists or top 50 lists of films from the the nineties or anything like that is kind of shocking to me. Now, that being said, as much as I really enjoy this film, it's not my top 100 either because there are flaws. The strength of this is in the, the acting, um, the attorney portion of it, the, it, it, the more, you know, when in 1992, I wasn't an attorney yet. Now that I've gone to law school, it's hard for me to watch law films. Kind of go, yeah, that wouldn't happen. Yeah, that wouldn't happen. It, 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 it crosses over into fantasy world to a certain extent. Um, it still plays off as good drama. Uh, but the, the lawyer por- portion of me starts to interfere and it just, it's you know, almost like, you know, an alien came down and suddenly decided that we're going to have new rules for evidence and new rules for objection and how we're going to present testimony. And it's hard for me to set that aside. So, um, but it wouldn't have been my top 100 before. It's one I really, really enjoy. It's a great film easily within my top 200, probably even in my top 150, but not my top 100, but this is Bobby's pick. So we'll, I'll give him the final word. Well, I will agree with everything you guys are all saying. Uh, I think this is a film that uh, it it came out in an amazing year of competition, and it just didn't stand a chance against something like Unforgiven or any of the others. This is an excellent film, and I think, like you guys are saying, the acting is the best part of it. But the story is actually really, really well done. Shane brought it up that most most plays that are brought into uh, into, or especially courtroom plays that are brought into the uh, big screen tend to be a little bit more small screenish. This one felt like a, a film, 
like an actual movie you'd want to see in, in the theater, which I did. And it is it really is a special film. And I'm glad that the Nicholson character or the or the, the Jessup character may have been nominated for a villain. He was a he was a military leader that might have made a questionable choice, but to make him a villain uh, against all the other villains in moviedom is, I think, an unfair assessment. So I, I'm glad that that was not that that's not part of the legacy of this film. But I would agree with what Patrick just said too about the '80s the '80s for the critics and for the audience. I've never met a person that did not love this film, and I, I don't mean like it. They loved this film. It's just a wonderful, wonderful film, and I think part of it, the reason that people are so forget about it, I guess they they're not harsh about it. They forget about it is because it's overplayed. I think, like you were saying, Patrick, with TBS and AMC, they play it all the time because they can. It's a, a fairly clean film. I mean, I don't I don't even know if there's. I think this is a PG thirteen, isn't it? I don't even say that the f bomb is in it. And oh, I, yeah, I think, and they, yeah, it's, it's said a few times when Jack Nicholson okay. goes off at the end. Yeah. Okay. Well, I just this is a film that could easily be a TV film that has power, but it also and and everybody says you know you can't handle the truth is totally the the um, the line that everybody quotes, but I think that that's uh, to the shame of of the people that are watching it because this is a very very good film that deserves to be watched by anyone and everyone i've recommended it to my kids to watch it and they won't watch it because it's old <laughs> so it's which old. is nuts because they watch all kinds of old stuff and it's like this is a good film but uh i, I got, still gotta get them in but uh no this is in my top 100 um it's and to be honest it's it's not in my top 50 but it's it's definitely in my top 100 and i just think this is an an excellent film that that deserves to be on anybody's uh shelf if they're collecting i really uh, love bobby it. bobby i'll just um add to what you said about jack nicholson's and and not the villain what about Kiefer sutherland he, he was more of a villain Kendrick. agreed yeah he was he was evil i mean honestly he he basically you're gonna do my bidding or else yeah and just exactly and jessup was doing his duty as the leader to make sure his uh underlings were all running at a four six four six uh they needed that he needed to make sure that they passed uh, otherwise as the leader of the the entire camp you know things can go wrong when you've got substandard marines sitting there with loaded guns 100 meters from cuba you know international yeah. <laughs> so you got to make sure that those people are doing their job well when you've got uh you know lieutenants that are basically power hungry that want to make sure you're going to do it their way they can get mean um, so I think that, I, like I said, Jessup was Jessup was doing his job. He just stepped over the line a little bit. I agree with you. Sutherland's character probably was a little nuts. He was more of a sadist. Yes. Oh, the acting. We haven't mentioned him at all. His entire podcast just about his acting was terrific. I mean, everybody's was, but mm. he was just so good. His eyes hardly ever blinked. He was just a really wicked man. Hmm. All right. Well, that does it for this month's review of A Few Good Men. Thanks again for joining us and listening to our little monthly podcast. If you've had a good time, the phone doesn't have to stop here. Uh, you can follow us on Pinterest or Twitter at MH Memories. On either one of those social media outlets, you can keep yourself informed about our occasional written film reviews and film summaries, news on upcoming theatrical releases and trailers, and information on many upcoming podcasts on the MHN Podcast Network. Additionally, uh, don't forget to subscribe to our, our account on YouTube, where we're now releasing our podcasts exclusively, exclusively. And while you're there, also remember to subscribe to both Shane and Bobby's individual YouTube cha uh, channels. Sh uh, Bobby's is viewing and reviewing. Uh, Shane is movie analyst with Shane Adam Bassett. Yep. Good right. enough. All right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, Bobby reviews films and short 10, 11 minute uh, interviews reviews shane actually interviews famous people who makes movies or who make movies. yeah his is more fun yeah his Absolutely. is more fun yours are great bobby i love it when you're outside at these random areas <laughs> does this mean we're famous now no <laughs> it does not <laughs> although i will give i'll keep giving shane a complaint the face-off uh, banner or poster behind your back all the time really face-off 
<laughs> it's just I just too I'm too lazy to move it. It's actually down now, so I am thinking of replacing it with something. The next interview I have, you, you need to do an interview on your surfboard in the surf. <laughs> yeah. I could put that in the background, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Dude, come on, you don't have a big standee for "Can't Stop the Music" or something to put back there? That is just. <laughs> Oh, I've got I've got plenty of plenty of uh, great posters and standees, but they're in storage, so it's an effort to go and get them. Uh, but uh, I'll figure something out to change it up for you, Patrick. And I hope when I get to the US, I get a tour of a real live courtroom from one of you guys. Oh yeah, be, you, you can come. If see. that's okay, Matt or Patrick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can come see my courtroom. Really, really not as exciting as they make it and oh. dramatic as they do in the film. I can call in and do some shouting if that helps. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that doesn't happen very often either. Uh, all right. Well, anyways, that is it for this episode of Movie House Memories. Join us next time when Lori will be back and we'll be reviewing her next pick for one of the greatest films of all time. And she's choosing a Christmas title, 1940s The Shop Around the Corner with James Stewart or Jimmy Stewart. So we get to hear... Matt's Jimmy Stewart imitation oh, cool. one more time. Well, well, well. <laughs> so, all right, until, Need some work. Need some work. Yeah, you gotta you gotta dust that off. Get get the rust out of there. So, all right. And t- until next time, I'm Patrick. And I've disappeared, and I don't exist anymore. And, and I've oh. been told I I can't handle the truth, but I I think I can. I th- I think I could. <laughs> and I'm Shane. Bye for now. And we'll see you all next time at our house. podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme music for Movie House Memories, Hiding Your Reality, is provided courtesy of Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of the MHM Podcast Network, Movie House Memories, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted.